spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have more eclectic conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. I'm excited to share with you a conversation that I had with Ashton Cole Arnoldy, who was on this podcast before, back on episode number 36. Ashton is a dear friend who I met in graduate school in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at CIIS. As the story goes, we have the same birth date, different years, but still securing us the same degree, Aries sons, and met having enrolled for all the same classes and having both been years deep into self-consciously experiencing the transit of Uranus conjunct our suns and Pluto square our suns back in that Uranus-Pluto square from 2012 to 2015, though the impact was certainly felt (laughs) for years after. It was more than kismet to align with this fellow astrological traveler. It feels like a magical portal opens up every time I spend time with him, and this time when we got together for this episode was the same. We talked about some of Ashton's current research in the PhD program and reflected on the concept of spiritual exercise, effort and grace, and the role of theatrics and acting in creating the self or creating new realities. A little bit about Ashton before we begin. AKA, otherwise known as Ashton Cole Arnoldy, is a transdisciplinary artist and scholar working on a PhD in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. His research focuses on the intersection of metaphysics, participatory theory, virtue epistemology, spiritual exercise, art, and technology. Musica Humanas is the organizing concept and living picture of his current doctoral research. Guided by this ancient concept, AKA seeks to articulate a vision of the human being as microcosm, a being integrally united with the cosmos and the evolutionary unfolding of its immaterial music. And a few announcements before we begin. I did not manage to upload this week's forecast for February 17 to 23rd, 2021 to this podcast, but you can still find it on my YouTube channel, Sabrina Monarch. I'm actually recording this introduction from an Airbnb in Portland, Oregon, where I've traveled to look for housing and have found the endeavor far more challenging than I imagined beforehand. At this point, the forecasts are weekly. I scarcely miss a week, and they're always available in at least one form, typically written, also on YouTube and or on this podcast, and usually all three. Please check my website or YouTube Uh, for this week particularly, if you rely on Magic of the Spheres for astrology updates and you see that I've missed a week here. Also, stay tuned for the announcement of the next course dates of my Evolutionary Astrology Intensive. I'm leaving the link to this course in the notes so you can learn more about it. The course is currently in session and it is a comprehensive introduction to the world of evolutionary astrology and the spiritual participatory life enhancing personal practice that we can create with astrology. The class consists of pre-recorded modules and live calls. The recorded modules have in themselves been called therapeutic by students. These modules are available for you forever and then in the weekly live calls, we can discuss the material and get to know one another. 
I also make myself available for questions because I know how important it is to have dialogue and to have someone to talk to when you're learning astrology. That's how I learned as well. If you're wanting to learn astrology in a supported, structured way and gain it as a personal practice that you can carry onward and you find resonance with the visions of astrology shared on this podcast and or across my platforms, this course is for you. And here's my conversation with Ashton. here with Ashton on Friday, Venus Day, and I'm really excited to talk to you about a pretty Venusian topic in a large sense. Like it's it's a far-reaching topic, um, but there is a musicality to it. And before we dive in, would you introduce yourself to the audience? And um, for those of you, you know, for those of you listening, Ashton was on this podcast earlier. I'm sure in the intro, I'll double back and say what episode it was. Um, but we went to school together and Ashton is continuing his studies in the PhD program. And I'll just let you take it from here as far as introducing yourself. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, so my, my name is Ashton Arnoldy and, um, my background before being in this program was in, um, filmmaking and arts and just always kind of transdisciplinary impulses. So studying religion, philosophy then too, but, um, yes, Sabrina and I met, uh, when we began the master's program, uh, in the philosophy, cosmology and consciousness program at CIIS. And I have, um, continued with that into the PhD program. And, um, the, the, what I'm, my research or my focus is sort of at this intersection of, um, spiritual exercise, uh, and neoplatonic philosophy, um, and participatory theory and aesthetics. And, and, and I've been, the organizing um, principle or idea for this, for me, has been music, but like a uh, like a perspective of music that um, encompasses all of life <laughs> and the cosmos. Um, so that's that's a little bit about me. What's spiritual exercise? Spiritual exercise is like uh, contemplation or meditation. Um, I actually I've been reading this book that Jake recommended to me. Um, who is a, a professor of ours in the program, uh, Jacob Sherman. Um, but it's called Effort and Grace, and um, it's about spiritual exercise. So uh, uh, philosophers that engaged in spiritual exercise include like well all the ancient philosophers. Um, pretty much. And, but like also Descartes meditations is an example of, uh, a, um, spiritual exercise, but he sort of begins, um, the break from the spirit part and overemphasizes the effort of the individual. So spiritual exercise, um, when you like take that together, at least, um, according to Simone Kotva, however you pronounce her name, who is the author of this book, she emphasizes that the spiritual and the spiritual exercise um, recognizes that, well, um, what allows us to even uh, do an exercise or exert any effort is something that um, 
gifts us our life. So, you know, a lot of people talk about that as spirit. Um, yeah. So that's what, I don't know if that <laughs> answers your question, but it does. Yeah. My just having Mars and Pisces, a little part of me was like, Ooh, spiritual exercise sounds like something that I like. Yeah. Totally. Um, and I, it was having me wonder about if there's strength training or endurance or these things that go into a spiritual practice that takes strength. Like if we're going to use the word exercise, that's just kind of where my mind went with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it kind of just depends on what, um, what, as I've been learning from uh, Simone Katva and also she, she sort of um, another thinker who wrote a lot about, spiritual exercise in the 20th century is Pierre Hadel and um, who was a French philosopher and um, she, yeah. So there, um, there is this aspect of the spiritual exercise that, um, that is related to uh, like strength training and endurance and discipline. Um, and that's like the aspect that, the individual brings especially um and then like so the pisces part would be like um that would be like the mars part and then the pisces part is like the underlying like channel of spirit that is giving rise to the individual consciousness um and so at least the way simone is presenting it and i think also um a figure that i've become especially interested in recently um a woman uh right uh, writing at the in the early 20th century 20th century and late um 19th century genevieve stebbins there's like this emphasis on effort to overcome the personality so as to then be able to like flow with the the unfolding of spirit in time so it's almost like effort to get out of the way and then just be. Um, it's kind of like, you know, Wu Wei, Taoist uh, idea. It's beautiful. I would love to hear more about Genevieve Steppens, um, what her ideas are and what's inspiring to you about her. Well, um, I discovered Genevieve Steppens in around August. I was just doing like a Google search as I was beginning my first comprehensive exam. So like my first big research paper, um, before beginning the dissertation and I typed in like harmony of the spheres, uh, contemplation somatics. And I found this article that was written by a woman named, uh, a former performer, uh, and independent scholar, Kelly Mullen. And she's, she, a lot of her work right now is focused on bringing this name Genevieve Stebbins back into the collective awareness. And um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that. Uh, but so Genevieve Stebbins is someone who is very influential on the emergence of somatics, the somatics movement and modern dance. Um, but a lot of people don't, um, She's just not a name that many people think of when they think of those two fields, but in, maybe increasingly that will change. Uh, but she, so she was born in um, the mid 19th century. Uh, 
and um, lived until 1934. And uh, she was born in uh, San Francisco. And um, so she began as a performer, as an actress, and then um, discovered this method called the Del Sartre method, which was a method, but Del Sartre, Francois Del Sartre was a, um, he was a French uh, orator, a singer, a performer, but he was primarily a teacher. And he had developed this, um, this method that was based on a kind of Neoplatonic esoteric understanding of the world. And um, so it was like more than just an acting technique. It was also very like spiritual. It was like a, a form of spiritual cultivation and, and involved like spiritual exercises. And um, Stebbins, when she discovered this, quickly became really enthusiastic about it and um, decided to just kind of devoted herself completely to that and um, and published her own interpretations of the method because I guess in the United States um, at the early 20th century, there had been a lot of people who were interested in it, but kind of distorting it. So she thought of herself as presenting a clear picture of it and also extending it further because she made her own contributions to what she developed, which, which she called a psychophysical system of culture. So like development. And um, so, uh, so she had this, she, she, so she became a teacher herself and she opened a school in New York city called the New York school of expression, uh, Carnegie hall. And, um, she taught one of the, uh, uh, major early figures of the somatics movement, Haid Kalmeyer, who was a teacher to Elsa Gindler, who's the name that most people think of when they think of early somatics practitioners. But um, yeah, so Stebbins' way of um, like the training that she that she derived from Del Sartre and it expanded was um, based on the idea that the human being is a microcosm of the macrocosm and that there's this analogical relationship between the human being and the cosmos. Um, basically, um, that, there's a, that the same order that gives rise to the cosmos is um, at the cosmic unfolding is also operative in the human being. It's the same idea that astrology is based on. But she um, developed a kind of um, uh, physical, you know, psychological uh, formation uh, according to that idea, and um, and she so she recognized she'd acknowledged that you know she did a lot of her own study and um, of different cultures and, and all these different philosophical perspectives. But she would also um, point out that it what the what she was presenting was the common property of all ages, so that it's like this kind of intrinsically human um, art. Um, so that's a a little bit. Um, I didn't go into anything super specific, but I'm curious, like what some of these exercises are. Mm-hmm. Well, so. Um, she was influenced by a romantic philosophy as well. And, um, a lot of romantics 
would emphasize um, that the universe is is um, kind of constituted by a polarity and like um, this movement, this unfolding that uh, has a kind of like spiralic, you know, um, quality to it. Um, and so a big, I guess that that informed her, especially, well, I guess every dimension of her form of training, because there was this emphasis on tension and then, uh, repose or like relaxation. So like one of the exercises that she, um, that like, I guess one of the themes in the exercises that she suggests is to like through the will um to uh what's withdraw the energy from your limbs and so let them to let them go limp um and 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 to do things like that often and it's um it not only like encourages a more subtle awareness of our embodied experience and our, I guess, our ability to, um, I don't know if control is the right word, but maybe it is (laughs) control how we, uh, extend our energy throughout the body. Something we're like usually unconscious of. Um, and, and I think another thing that that, um, theme throughout the exercises conveys is that she really, Um, another like image to work with in consideration of the training is, is the human being as an instrument. So um, to, uh, to practice these sorts of exercises frees up the body from unnecessary tension. So there could be more of um, a grace in, in moving about. And some of the other poses um, and exercises are also um, dedicated to that uh, kind of making, practicing so much and making a habit out of graceful movement um, that that she saw especially um, pictured or bodied forth by Greek statuary of the gods and goddesses. I like this idea of the human as like an instrument kind of like a musical instrument in some sense that we can channel that we, um, and I guess similar to actually like working with an instrument, there's a way that our consciousness or our skill or our craft infuses the way that we play and the music that we create, um, as opposed to being unintentional or just unconscious and whatever music comes out from that space. But the idea that we have some creative, agency and how we express ourselves. Um, and yeah, I'm just curious kind of what has unfolded for you in studying this and thinking about the human condition through this place of agency or instrument. Yeah. Um, well, I think if I had discovered it at an earlier time in my life, I, may not have um found it as appealing <laughs> because um Why? i think well um maybe maybe because i just wouldn't have understood it um or uh i well i think you know our culture really um or the dominant culture really pushes 
um, you know, this materialist conception of who we are, um, which, you know, there's this encouragement to identify with the smaller part of ourself and, you know, compare ourselves to other people and, um, and, and, um, and also, you know, as far as like healing goes or like trauma or whatever, um, if there's not this like larger spiritual background to how we understand ourselves and like what we have to confront in our life as schooling or as like teaching as a learning that, you know, we, in some sense chose, (laughs) um, you know, even though that kind of is incomprehensible to, you know, can't, it's not as simple, you know, as choosing to, um, you know, uh, put on a different pair of shoes, but, um, so I think the reason maybe it wouldn't have, um, resonated with me as strongly in the past was because I, you know, I think in the past I was more mired in, uh, uh, understanding myself in a smaller way, you know, without, without as much agency, um, identified with, um, my brain, you know, or, or like my thoughts or, um, and, and so she really encourages, uh, the transcendence of that. And I think you have to have a spiritual understanding of the human being in order to really be able to, um, meet that. So, um, as far as creative agency goes in, in relation to this, this form of self-cultivation, um, I think that's sort of what somatics itself is based on, or at least conveys that there's this reciprocity between um, our materiality and like the habits that have given rise to our facial expressions or the way that we hold our bodies or whatever it is Um, the way, you know, even like the soul habits of like feeling a lot of tension or like anxiety, you know, because of certain circumstances that these things are, um, habits, you know, and that they can be changed. Um, and, and sometimes in order to change them, we need to do more drastic things, you know, um, to maybe like be thrown into an, you know, I guess a re experiencing of something or, but sometimes maybe we don't really need to do that. You know, sometimes maybe we just need to change the way that, um, we hold ourselves or, um, change the way that we, uh, you know, or to, um, take up more of a, um, responsibility for one's thoughts, um, and feelings and to question, um, the, uh, like, I guess the business as usual, um, interpretation of experience. I love that. It's, it's kind of one of my favorite things is <laughs> thinking about this experience as kind of like a matrix in some sense. And that, there's ways that we bind ourselves to less free states of being because of things that we believe that aren't true or simply habits that we have that we are somewhat unconscious of, but, you know, we're doing the same thing and having consequences, but thinking that those things exist inherently as opposed to being 
um, enacted. And when you were saying the thing about changing how we hold ourselves, this is something that I think of a lot, um, especially just from either writing and then editing my writing or being on video and watching myself back on video and noticing what I want to change. But I think there's an interesting kind of self-consciousness that comes with noting one's own mannerisms. But like one example that came to mind for me was thinking about when saying something, proclaiming it with a certain kind of confidence, as opposed to finishing it with a nervous laugh. And that's something like for me, when I've wanted to embody more confidence, it hasn't just been from an emotional place. It's been behavioral of like, if I'm going to say something, I'm just going to say it period and not laugh when I'm done. Right. And then even now just saying that I'll probably be self-conscious about it for a little bit. Right. But things like that are, um, there's a connection there, I think, between performance and acting or theater, right? Because you're examining how you take up space, how you express yourself and what kind of mood or consequence that creates in the scene of either a piece of art or your actual life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think of the Mars and Pisces thing again, or, you know, that combination of Mars and Neptune where there's like this... Um, this, uh, like what's implicit is that we're more than, than what we are at any given moment, you know, or that there's, there's always more to who we are and that, you know, we're changeable, you know, to a certain extent in this lifetime. Um, and, um, and like, it also makes me think about, you know, that this woman, Genevieve Stebbins, you know, she was an actress, right? But then she developed this whole system of training, uh, you know, that really tried to realize the highest human potential. Um, and it is very much um, about, you know, acting one's way into it, you know, and, and learning all of the skills that a performer would need to learn. And, um, and if you think about, you know, performers, especially actors and actresses, um, you know, they, they, their craft is to become <laughs> different characters. And if they do it well, then they really become those different characters. And, um, I, uh, I just, I, um, that book that I was talking to you about a little bit before we started recording, um, the, uh, uh, you are not your brain by this Jeffrey Schwartz neuroscientist is, also based on these ideas and, and he um, he's kind of famous because he's worked with performers. He worked with Leonardo DiCaprio um, who wanted to like learn how to um, he wanted to become obsessive compulsive <laughs> and he wanted to understand what, you know, everything, because this neuroscientist specializes in OCD, you know, people who have OCD and anyway, so he, he kind of, you know, I guess um, learned from Jeffrey Schwartz about, what, you know, what the lived experience of someone is, uh, that has OCD and he developed it. And then Jeffrey Schwartz to, to, to fulfill this role, I can't remember what movie it was for, but, and then he had to unlearn it, you know, and, and it just, it just shows how much, um, you know, I mean, his is a great example of, uh, that we have a lot of agency over, um, 
who we, who we could be at any given moment, but it takes time, right? Like you were saying, we're, we're used to being a certain way. And, and so, um, you have to kind of risk becoming someone else and that's uncomfortable and, you know, you can feel like an imposter or whatever. Well, and I think that, I don't know, it takes a certain level of suspending belief to play this game. Yeah. Because I think that one has to believe that the reality that they're in is not objectively real, that it's a construction. It's real enough um, in the sense that there's consequences and cause and effect and social institutions and gravity. There's like certain forces, but there's a high degree of possibility that comes forth when we change our minds or play, you know, enact something new. And I think there, it calls into question the ego's like limitations and obsessions or attachments Mm -hmm. at that point. And also I think even just the emotional range that we have, um, where I think that, you know, within manifestation teachings, which I love uh, a lot, there's a, a sense of identifying what you desire and then pretending that you feel like you've already received it. So one has to generate feelings out of nowhere, not generate feelings as a reaction or a response to a concrete event, but something that's generated in relationship with a fantasy. And I think that that is playful but it's also psychologically challenging potentially if one, you know, lets themselves feel something that's scary to feel or that mm-hmm. they feel like, you know, it's easier to just block that off and not go there than to actually dive into pretending that you have had your wildest dreams come true because then you have to wake up to the next moment where it's not a physical reality yet. And how do you, go through that experience detached enough, open enough, but also investing. So I like the Leonardo DiCaprio thing here too of, um, you know, I didn't know that story about him, but that's some serious commitment to craft to go and like develop OCD and then unlearn it. And I think it's also inspiring to think about coming back to the idea of an instrument and tuning oneself to particular, a particular frequency. And then, untuning or tuning into something else afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like one of the questions about, you know, this, um, this potential, uh, to really shape, uh, imaginatively reshape ourselves and our lives. Um, they like the, the image of being an instrument, um, and, and also like the spiritual exercise that goes into it, it like kind of begs the question, an instrument of what, you know, um, like in, you know, in the, in the grandest sense. And, and I think that can really, and I think that's been sort of the, I guess, the focus of many spiritual traditions. Um, and, and like what informs um, this, this creative gift that we have, uh, what should, um, what should guide it, you know? Uh, yeah. 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 I like that actually too, because there's a, a sense that we're already doing all of this anyway. And some people were like society 
can be an instrument for like Brian Swim, our professor at CIS um, was so brilliant at talking about how there's this thing called industrial consciousness and that we organize our society based off of gross domestic product. And we kind of organize around money and around profit at a level that almost makes it a kind of God of our society. And he calls it a severely truncated worldview that if we were thinking about higher values or the earth or the cosmos, as opposed to this extremely limited part of our experience, that is kind of an addiction. It's like the ego, the small self is, you know, social structures that if we haven't stopped to suspend our belief in them and to question them, then we might live our whole lives trying to get ahead in that world and have the money and not really care about the impact it has on the environment, not really care about the ethics because it's all that we're seeing. As opposed to expanding that. Um, And I think once it is expanded, I think even some spiritual teachings bring in this idea I mean, a lot of them bring in the idea of service. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, to um, reminds me of Tolkien. You know, he he had he, he was you know influenced by Romantic philosophy too, and um, his ideal for the human being as a you know as a creative being was to create in like manner as the creator. You know, to so like this imitation of nature, but extension of nature. Um, yeah. So service, I think that, you know, that's an expression of service. Yeah. Right. And I think, yeah, it can be something that we do at this like really high or more ultimate place. Like we have some really like higher esteemed values that we live in accordance with. And then it can also happen in the micro. Like if we're doing a project and we have an intention for it and we co-create with the universe and create something in service, people who are practicing planetary magic do this every day of the week. It's Friday. So today we're going to honor Venus, you know, and that, um, it creates a kind of opening, um, I like this with like Carolyn Casey and making the gods work for you talks about ritual as a meeting ground where once we set up the physical space of a ritual or perhaps the energetic space, if it's more of an imagination based one that we're telling the gods that we want to collaborate. Um, I don't know why I thought of that. Actually, the, this sense that, through some kind of portal of our actions or something that we construct, we can channel something much greater through it. Um, And that's always available to us. And I'm having another memory too, that's flashing into my mind. So let's see if it connects in, (laughs) but I was on a plane one time and I was hearing, this was actually at a time in my life where missionaries had come to my door and I was talking to them like once a week for some months. And I was into astrology already, but I wanted to learn from them because it was a synchronicity that they appeared um, in my life because I was writing a novel that involved um, someone who had had a history in that particular religion. So it's like, yeah, come in, you know, it was like no, research for my novel, 
But I ended up having a really transcendent experience with these missionaries. Like I saw that their reality was ontologically real to them, that when they had a question, they would ask God and then the Holy Spirit would talk to them and they'd get an intuition to look up a certain Bible passage. And so during that time, I became really fascinated with Christianity. I had never grown up with religious conditioning, so it didn't have a lot of baggage to me. And so in the midst of this experience, I was on an airplane and I heard, you know, there was this man and he was just basically kind of in the mode of gospel. Like he was talking about his experience with God, with some other person on an airplane. He was talking about how he prayed every day for an answer to hear back from God. And he heard nothing for days and days and maybe like Maybe it went on years. I don't know. But finally he heard a voice and he connected with God and he was just, you know, excitedly sharing that. And I was overhearing it and thinking about, you know, this kind of connects to spiritual exercise about you might meditate once and it's not that profound, but you meditate every day and it grows in some sense. And I think that our spiritual aspirations have a similar quality where we don't necessarily know at first how to hear the universe talking back to us. Sometimes it's really shocking when we start to hear the universe speak back to us, but I think that it is an exercise. It's like putting in the intention, showing up for the action, and then knowing how to step back and receive the, the dialogue. Yeah, totally. I think that's uh, that's the that's very much the theme of this book, Effort and Grace. And Grace is like um, that understood. Um, one of the philosophers that she thinks with in that book is his name is uh, I'm going to kind of butcher it. <laughs> Felix Rabesson. He was a French um, philosopher in the 19th century, and he had this tension between um effort and grace he wrote a he wrote an essay actually called on habit and um but grace he talked about grace as being like nature basically grace we we are gifted our existence um and that is grace and and so the effort goes on top of grace so that we can through i guess effort and aspiration and discipline eventually um unobstruct ourselves and let grace flow in and some people just you know are you know born and that just just happens you know but like you were describing i think the the society you know dominant culture creates obstructions for us and in our personal experiences but um one of the the thinker that she's especially gonna um i guess what is she uh the, the person that's at the center of this book is a was a female philosopher in the 20th century, Simone Weil, who was also French. And she talked about, um, I haven't got there yet, but she's mentioned it a little bit, a negative effort, um, which is like, I think kind of like effortless action or like waiting, waiting um, rather than um, pushing. <laughs> But um, but it's still its own kind of effort, and um, and it's also I think similar to you know the this, this same idea was uh, what Stebbins was working with too to kind of free up the human being so as to to be able to receive. Yeah. How have your experiences or experiments gone with some of these ideas? Well. Um, 
I, hmm, how should I begin? I, before, I mean, around the time, same time, actually, that I was discovering Stebbins, I was getting more into Rudolf Steiner's work and he, you know, his work, especially consists in spiritual exercise and the use of the imagination and feeling in order to kind of grow new spiritual organs of perception. Um, that was his whole thing. He was like, you have to like, you're not, it doesn't just come like our vision does, even though actually our vision doesn't just come either. It's like a, it's like a participatory relationship with light and everything. But, um, but he, yeah, he talked about, um, uh, or just, he gave a lot of suggestions for exercises that, um, that develop, uh, in the human being, the capacity to perceive, um, he said super sensible perception. So beyond what we perceive with our sensual, um, with our senses, our physical senses. Um, and he also has like very simple exercises like that help to free the will from our kind of enslavement to our material existence. Um, cause he just points out how typically we, our days unfold, um, more or less dictated by things that, of the external world. Um, and so one of the simple exercises he has people do is you set something to do for yourself every day at a certain time of day. And it, it doesn't, it, it needs to be something that you would never do otherwise, something kind of like trivial. So like it could be for me, what I've been doing is um, turning around in a circle three times at one, 1 PM. And um, it, over time, it, it, he says it develops it, the more of um, I guess awareness of our everyday um brings more consciousness to the way we move through the day and, um, and creates more space in the individual, um, to, to not be so beholden to the external world, um, or, you know, even our own, you know, minds. And another exercise he has people do, which is related to the, the other one is to, um, for like five, at least five minutes a day, um, look at, or, um, briefly look at a, a pencil or something, something that is typically, it's typically suggested to look at something that is made by human beings. That's simple. And that's not gonna, you're not going to be fascinated by it. It needs to be something kind of boring. And what you do is you just for five minutes, um, imagine what you looked at and only think logical thoughts about it. <laughs> You have to concentrate for five minutes and not let anything else into your mind. And what that does is um, uh, over time develop more of a capacity to control one's thinking um, and to, you know, um, think more logically, which is not something, you know, um, not something that is so we shouldn't apply that to everything in our life, but it can be really valuable if you have any experience, um, with, uh, you know, thoughts that are irrational, you know, that, that, that's, you know, that leads you to think negative things about yourself or to be paranoid about other people, you know, like, Oh, did I, did, 
that, you know, did they mean something by that? Or, you know, it could be as simple as that, but, um, so those things have really, they, they have really, um, actually had a positive impact on me and made me a calmer person. <laughs> um, uh, another thing, um, since discovering Jeffrey Schwartz book, you are not your brain. Um, personally, like of just, uh, from certain, you know, experiences in my life, uh, dealt with cat, what I just, what I call, what is called catastrophic thinking. So like for a while, I would think that I was going to choke every time I ate or like, or like, I'm going to crash my car. Like every second while I'm driving my car, I'm like terrified that I'm going to just faint and pass out. Like it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's basically this fear of, um, losing control. Um, and so, so that is also, um, uh, I think you have to really identify or begin to identify with a part of your soul that is not material, that is not, um, that is eternal. <laughs> and, and like, and that's the place I think, um, from which we can really begin to, uh, reshape ourselves and, and, and to disidentify with the personality, the time bound personality, but to still like to, to relate to it more as a work of art, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a little reminds bit. me of <laughs> Lady Gaga living every day. Yeah. Like a life is a work of art. And yeah, I think that even just that kind of meditation of life is art allows for some analysis of like, what's the intention or the, the way that we're imbuing it. I think sometimes about anxious thoughts and kind of my own process as well with transmuting my anxiety where sometimes, you know, it gets to a point of seeing the pattern, understanding it, there's the analysis, like Mm -hmm. that is one route, but then it's also a sense of, well, what am I looking to create and does this serve me? And if not, then I'm, you know, not going to go there. And I've been having an, an interesting experience with it lately of noticing horizon points that I feel like historically I would have been anxious about, but I don't feel any charge around it. Like we'll get there when we get there. It's like not, you know, or I'm envisioning positive things happening or things working out and just kind of thinking about how much, you know, it also really strikes me how there's a body connection to our thoughts and that we can create cortisol or adrenaline with anxious thinking and that we can create endorphins with positive thoughts or focusing on gratitude. And that to me just feels so creative, like, especially with, um, a gratitude practice where it can go, it's a practice of receptivity where by bringing the mind to focus on what is already beautiful or abundant or something that we find pleasure in, we start to light up those neural pathways and not only do we start to notice, like, I think the most logical or kind of scientific explanation is that we begin to notice more things because we're paying attention. But I think that the universe also notices us noticing those things and puts more of those things in our field. Um, so if the universe sees that we're already on like a gratitude wavelength, it's like, cool, let me send you some more things to feel grateful about. And I think that that line of thinking, like, there's a liberty that I take there. I, I actually believe it too, but at least from the, from a more 
conventional perspective, there's the neurochemistry as well in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it um, it reminds me of um, like another thing that Stebbins would talked about was just the that um, you know certain soul states uh, have their correspondence in our respiration rate, and then that can affect our whole you know, whole health and, um, and that, um, like the practice of the virtues, um, has like, like gratitude has an impact on our being. They're not just like, um, religious, you know, they're not just religious, uh, residue, you know, or just Mm -hmm. like stupid rules to follow. Um, it's, it's just interesting, you know, how like, scientists neuroscience and you know things like that are um looking at these things that we've already known right or that 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 the religions have cultivated in in human beings and now now we have like physiological uh, you know um reinforcement you know for for that and that just like i think sometimes like you know when there's not like a over you know like larger enchanted or spiritual world worldview in which the scientists who's discovering those things or at least, um, studying them. Um, uh, then it, then it, it kind of, it's just like, Oh yeah, this is just, you know, how it works. Whereas one of the, one of the, um, I think in the, in the really interesting, um, Christian philosophers, theologians, mystics, um, throughout history, um, one of the, I guess, primary, ways of worshiping is to give thanks you know to recognize everything as a gift and um so that the fact that that brings health you know you know i feel like it 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 reinforces um it can be seen to reinforce a certain understanding of the universe and yeah and what it means to exist oh i feel happy just thinking about that (laughs) Um, will you share, like you shared with me a term, a Latin term that I don't think I can pronounce from memory. Um, but can you share what it is and what it means? The, um, the musica, uh, musica humana or, uh, musica humana (laughs) (laughs) as an American. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? What does it mean? Well, so, um, I think it is, a, an idea that, um, or maybe a reality we could say, um, that, that has to be understood also in relation to musica mundanas or, um, mundanas, <laughs> the world music, um, like mundane astrology, uh, and then there's also musica instrumentalis, and that's like the music that we make with our voices and our instruments. Um, but the human music or the musica humana is like the it's like the the uh, correspondence within the human microcosm uh, of the macroscopic um, music. Um, so it conveys, you know, it's kind of like the the, the the mediate music as the mediating principle between the 
cosmic unfolding and, and the human beings participation in it, every human being. So it's like, it's like, um, it's like saying as above, so below, but I think, you know, thinking about it, it with the, with music as being the kind of organizing principle helps to give a sense of what it means to participate and what it's, what it feels like. And, um, that term also relates to like the music of the body. Um, so like the heart and the breathing rate and the, how these things are related to the rhythms of the seasons and the movements of the planets. And, um, so that's, that's what that relates to. So pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a little bit of a turn here, but I'm, you know, I was realizing when we started that you have Mercury and Pisces, so do I. And the <laughs> show has had like a certain string of Mercury and Pisces guests. And oh, cool. so, yeah. And I feel there's a little bit of a, you know, an idea that Mercury and Pisces is like not an ideal placement or it's difficult, but yeah. I mean, I love it. And I have <laughs> the best, most like sparkling conversations with other Mercury and Pisces people. And there's been some Mercury and Pisces people who have left reviews for this podcast saying that they feel encouraged or inspired Aww. Uh, because, you know, I think it is a very, um, impressionistic or impressionable energy Pisces. So if you read some interpretation that, you know, you're fucked because of your Mercury. Yeah. Sign, totally. You know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so I just really want to promote like well-being for the fellow Mercury and Pisces people. And I'm just curious uh, how you relate with the placement. Well, um, that's, I like, I like this, this is a topic. Um, I've also felt, you know, like, even though I knew it's like detriment or fall or whatever, um, I, I've never really felt like I was unhappy about it. You know, like the only thing really though, is the suggestibility, you know? And, um, I think, you know, you, I think what you were describing earlier was, um, your, um, like your positive relationship to that. Like, so like just this kind of, you know, um, more like faith and trust into, uh, well, providing a positive image, right? Because that's what this guy, Jeffrey Schwartz and others talk about, even Genevieve Stebbins in a way that, um, with these, we have to have in order to counter like the, like the unhealthy thinking or feeling we need a positive to focus on, to redirect the energy towards. And, um, but you have to also, I think philosophically, or like you have to believe that that's possible, right? Like that, that there is, because there's, you know, in the Western culture, the, you know, the dominant medical paradigm is founded on this idea that we're just, matter, you know, or just chemistry or whatever it is, there's not really this, this relationship between, you know, the creative soul and the body. So don't, you know, like you're just making things up or whatever, um, materialism. So, but if we, if we don't accept materialism, then we can really, um, put that into practice. And, um, I think I've experienced a lot of like the negative suggestible, like being like, almost like having to not ask, I, not, um, I don't want to hear other people's opinions about certain things, you know, <laughs> and I'm getting, now that I've, you know, given more of my energy to a positive alternatives for myself, I can, you know, more receive without, 
being, I guess, uh, pummeled by somebody else's opinion, but that's one way I've, um, related to, that's one way I experience Mercury and Pisces is just that the, the either, or, you know, and, and the necessity for Mercury, Mercury and Pisces person to really cultivate positive images. Um, uh, but it, yeah, I think it's a real gift because, um, there's like an intuitive recognition of these, um, ideas that you can't really, um, or even these higher realities that you can't reach with earthbound logic, you know, like just paradox and contradiction. And I've always found a sort of facility in, be, in being able to grasp um, intangibles, you know. Um, so that's, that's one, one really great thing about Mercury and Pisces as well. I love that. Grasping intangibles. Yeah. Organizing, understanding, intuiting, like <laughs> the mysteries of the cosmos. Um, I'm going to share the link for people of your Genevieve Stebbins nope. talk. Um, you're a beautiful writer, um, as we might expect from hearing you speak. Um, I'm curious if there's um, other ways that people can find you or connect with you. Uh, I pretty much have everything on my little website. Um, I just renamed it to <laughs> Musica Humana. So it's going to be my organizing principle for everything, I think. Um, so, yeah, there's like I have a Vimeo connected to that. My email's on there. So everything's on there. OK, I'll leave that in the notes. Um, well, this has been really lovely. I always love talking to you and this is a great way to spend Venus day. I think the last time that we recorded, it was like a Taurus new or full moon or something. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think I remember that too. Yeah. You had just come from a voice lesson. Yes. Yes. I remember that yeah. in your, in your beautiful room. Well, thank you, Ashton. Thank you everyone for tuning in. 